the beautiful thing what I see with a lot of families and Brené Brown writes about this too in her in her work around shame is that not only you know let's say I do my work and I have self-compassion and all you know all this healthy stuff and so I'm I'm so much better off and my kids you know it trickles down to my kids but it also can move back up the family tree so the older generations can still benefit Welcome to the Well-Balanced Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian Botel. I'm passionate about having meaningful and inspiring conversations about learning to respect, accept, and love ourselves. Helping women find their worth and step away from the cycle of dieting and into a radical inside-out approach to health. If this sounds like something you are interested in, then you are in the right place, my friend. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Well Balanced Podcast. I am so happy to have you joining me for this episode. Today, I sat down and chatted with Caitlin Olson, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and we got into the juiciness that is inherited trauma. In this episode, Caitlin helps us understand how we can discover our own inherited traumas, how those traumas are showing up in our lives. She even opens up and shares what is something that has been passed down for generations in her own family. And when we are talking in regards to weight pressure, diet rules, disordered eating, eating disorders, body talk, shame around our bodies, that is something that is definitely passed down through generations and What you'll come to hear in this episode is that we have the amazing ability to deal with this trauma that's been passed down to us and end the cycle. And Caitlin also shares so many amazing resources that are available for you to get your hands on. So if therapy is not something that is available to you or you don't yet feel comfortable taking that step, you have a definite place to start I'm so fortunate for Caitlin taking the time to have this really important discussion around fears and beliefs and trauma that is showing up in our lives and how we can move through it. I have no doubt that this episode is going to have so many amazing takeaways for you all. And if you do take anything away from it, I would absolutely love it if you took the time to give it a shout out on your social media Pop it up on your Instagram stories and tag me at Jillian Botel. Just helps me get the word out there and it is so greatly appreciated. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for being here, Caitlin. I was so thrilled when you said yes to sitting down and chatting. And honestly, the hardest part for me was trying to decide out of all of the amazing topics, which one was going to resonate the most for my listeners. And the topic we are going to chat on isn't something that I ever explored before on the podcast, so I am so excited to bring this forward. But first, welcome. I'm so grateful to have you here. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for asking me, Jillian. It's really a pleasure. So today, we are going to dive into inherited trauma, which I have to say I'm really excited to learn more (laughs) about and how this can be affecting us in our own healing journeys. I would love it if you would start off by breaking down what inherited trauma is. Sure. Um, So inherited trauma or intergenerational trauma, you know, those terms are pretty interchangeable, are essentially traumas that, you know, a person doesn't experience themselves, but have been experienced in their families, their families of origin, whether that's biological or adoptive or otherwise. But there's especially a link uh, genetically 
between biological relationships, you know, biological generations. So how can we know if something is inherited trauma or just our own issue? Oh, that's such a good question. So, well, kind of, first of all, we all have intergenerational trauma. We all inherit whatever we inherit from our families of origin. So I think kind of starting off with that assumption that it's just part of the human condition to inherit some patterns or some pain or some ideas or some beliefs or, um, again, genetic kind of mutations based on trauma. Mm-hmm. That's kind of part of it. You know, we accept that. So we all have something that's inherited. But then I, it really helps both in my personal and professional experience to look just at the family history, you know, and look for patterns and look for um, any sort of kind of um, repeated ex- experiences. Um, that can be really, really useful just to get a pen and paper and draw the family tree or make a genogram with a therapist or by yourself and look for what might be a pattern. So how do they show up in our life? Like, say, would it be along the lines of like, maybe a fear, fears we have, like you mentioned, kind of beliefs? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, I work a lot with um, people and couples who are affected by addiction. So oftentimes at the very beginning of my work, and this is with any client, but especially with clients who are affected by addiction, I'll ask them, tell me about your parents, you know, tell me about your grandparents, tell me about your experiences and when you started, you know, using this specific thing addictively. And nine times out of 10, there's a family history. And that's not a research-based statistic, you know, that's anecdotal, but uh, it's so soothing most of the time for these clients to look at their family tree and say, oh, okay, like, no wonder this is hard for me. This has been hard for, you know, half the members of my family on both sides, or this has been hard for every male in my family. You know, it really helps um, access compassion and kind of destigmatize what they're struggling with. So sometimes to answer your question, it shows up as unwanted compulsive behaviors mm-hmm. or unwanted compulsive thought patterns or habits. Um, but then the beliefs, you know, those can be more subtle because, you know, they're internal and they're not as clear from the outside. Not all the time. Sometimes it's clear. You have to do a little digging to find the root of it, but that's um, that's the kind of thing that takes, I think, a lot of conversation, mm-hmm. and especially if there's any sort of safety or reciprocity with those older generations, like ask, ask, you know, if if there's maybe one, there's a belief like I'm I'm a bad mom, for example, right? You can go to your own mother and ask how you know has this ever affected you, or how do you view yourself as a mom, and then go to your grandmother. If there's a great grandmother you can talk to, maybe there are journals or other artifacts that you can explore. Maybe you can talk to people who did know the people who have passed on and just let yourself explore and therefore kind of share the burden and not have it be so um, singular. And that way it can be a shared healing experience too. Right. And it's kind of cool to reflect on something as simple as like the thought of say being a bad mother or like a lot of discussion that happens on my page and on the podcast is body image issues. And so it's interesting because I was just reflecting that I feel like a lot of those, um, the pressures or the thoughts or the fears of what would happen if we gained weight or we lived in bigger bodies or if we let ourselves, it probably has been something that, you know, could potentially have been passed down. Mm -hmm, For sure. And I, that's where 
for me personally, it's been really eye-opening, you know, I think, well, you know, if it's okay, I'll just kind of like share a little bit about what I've learned about my self and how this really has applied to me. And looking at my family tree on both sides, there have been, there is, you know, struggles with obesity, there are eating disorders, and just talk about bodies and diets that is very shame-based. So for me, that was really useful. I mean, it's heartbreaking, you know, and it's sad and it's not, it's not pain-free, but at the same time, it's also really relieving to realize, okay, this isn't something that I kind of made up. You know, it's not something that I alone, I'm not an outlier in my family. You know, this is something that has been trying to sort itself out for, at least to my knowledge, at least four generations. I'm sure it's more. Wow. So just knowing that, and then it kind of, you can feel like the weight of it, which I think is where the trauma kicks in, you know, that inherited trauma can feel like a weight. Mm-hmm. And it can also really, again, be a relief to realize this isn't all mine. Like I don't have to carry this weight. Right. And I know it's kind of sounds like a pun because we're talking about body image and weight issues. Right. But it, it that emotional, mental heaviness, you know, can really be released. I'm just trying to think here, like, can you have fears? Let's say you're completely unaware that there is this like underlying issue in your family. So like you feel like this is just your own thing. I guess you're saying, you know, start by asking some questions. Yeah, I think, and this is, that's why I kind of always start there with clients. Like if people come in and say, you know, I'm having trouble with body image or, you know, self-esteem or addiction, that's the first thing I want to do is de-isolate them even just in their own heads. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not just your issue. And even if, you know, you say you go to your family, like if I looked at my family tree and I'm the only one who's ever had an unhealthy body image, I know that I can look outside my family and see that I'm not the only one, right? So as a human race, there's no such thing as isolation. It just sometimes takes a little bit of kind of creative approach to find it. So let's say we, we've, you know, done some digging and realize that this fear that lives within us or these beliefs maybe have some merit to them because our mothers or our fathers dealt with it or even our grandparents. So now that we have that knowledge, how do we start to detach from this trauma? How do we, how can we really start to heal this trauma so that it isn't passed down to our own children? Sure. Yeah. And I think that's really motivating, right? I've heard a lot of people say, okay, this, this ends with me. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not passing this down in the same way with the same heaviness to my own children and our own kids are really motivating. I know for me, um, that was, you know, having a daughter and just realizing and seeing her step on the scale and copy me when I stepped on the scale and then walk away, like all, you know, copying my body language. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh no, we're not doing this anymore. You know? So that's really motivating. And yet at the same time, it has to come back to doing it for ourselves. At some point, it has to kind of switch over. Um, but to start the process, I think it's okay to be motivated by external forces and other people. Um, and to start, the, the thing that I always point people to is a specific book. It's, the, it's called It Didn't Start With You mm. by Mark Wolin. Have you heard of this book? I haven't. It's really wonderful. And I I think I heard him maybe, oh no, I heard about this book from uh, another therapist, a therapist who was supervising me and training me and who I really respected. And he just said, this is something like everyone needs to read, you know? So I read it for myself and it was hard to get through because it's really activating, you know, it's, 
very thought provoking, really emotional, especially if you're in that place of wanting to, to get insight and wanting to change and create movement for yourself. So I took a while to read through. I think it took me a year. You know, I would read for a little bit and then take a long break. And there are lots of prompts and journaling exercises, meditations, visualizations. So it's, it's an intensive interactive experience, but that really helped me find language for, and again, a lot of validation for a lot of what I was feeling. And then he has so many wonderful insights into how to shift things. Mm-hmm. And so for me, what, what that looked like was gathering info by reading that book, doing the journaling prompts, doing the visualizations. I've created probably thousands of affirmations <laughs> over the last couple of years, just depending on where I was and what I was focused on, what I really wanted to shift. Yeah. And um, some of them, you know, because of different things that, you know, all these different factors, right? Body image and family dynamics and relationships. A lot of them were, were aimed directly at, you know, my, my family of origin or the way I thought about my family of origin. Mm-hmm. And it, they of course shift over time. And I think being really in tune with what I was needing and where I wanted to work really informed the affirmations, right? But I didn't know where to start without having that foundation from the book itself. I really reading that book and and really taking it seriously. Well, I'm going to check it out. So it almost sounds to me that when you realize that there is something that isn't serving you, that you almost have to become really familiarized with it, like really get to know that fear, really question it, explore it. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think that's important while also not trying to like sit in it too deeply or like kind of wallow, but just be like, okay, this is the reality for me right now. These are the beliefs that I have for lots of different reasons. And I think, especially, I don't know, in my experience, and I think for everybody, but especially around body and diet, because there's so much correlation between a mother's mm-hmm. body image and her daughter's, you know, it can fall really it can be really easy to fall into blame or anger of a specific person. So it's okay to feel that, you know, and process through it. And the way that I did that was with like a lot of journaling, a lot of letters that I never sent, you know, a lot of just kind of venting my husband, other people, you know, just kind of heard me say a lot of the same things over and over again. And I don't think it has to take a long time, but, you know, experience the emotion, validate it and get really familiar with the language around the fear or the language around the belief. And then once it's in writing and it's really clear, then it's easy to find where you you need to make change, right? And where you can challenge the beliefs. And sometimes it might be as simple as a couple journaling exercises and some affirmations and practicing that for a few weeks and things really shift. Sometimes it might take a lot more work. It might be more formal. It might be coaching and therapy and groups and a lot of books, you know, and all of that. But it's, it is kind of a simple structure. It just sometimes it really differs in the details person to person. Right. That was kind of what I was going to ask. Like, can it be something that almost stays with a person for like the, like something that they almost always are constantly trying to reprogram or after a certain time, does it start to, you know, take on a new truth? Um, well, I, I hold a lot of belief and hope that it can always change. And I have seen that in clients and felt that in myself, you know, a, a huge 180 when it comes to some of these inherited beliefs or inherited traumas. I don't know anyone, and that might just be a nature of kind of my work and my world, right? But I don't know anybody who's done it without a lot of really deliberate force 
and effort. You know, it's, it's a lot of time and energy and de- deliberateness that it takes. <clears throat> yeah. Because it's now with science, we know like, you know, with the neuroplasticity of our brain, when something is thought of over and over again, it's like those neural pathways are so hacked down, if you will, yeah, that yeah. it really does take constant effort to be like reroute, reroute, yeah. different thought, different mm-hmm. thought. Yeah. Do you think therapy is something that everyone could benefit for having a consistent routine with it in their own lives? Therapy. I mean, it depends on like what you mean by consistent, right? But I guess person to person, I don't, as long as it's a good fit, as long as there's safety and professionalism, you know, and all of the things that, that are necessary for good therapy, as long as it's a good fit, I don't ever see any harm in mm-hmm. investing time and money and energy into mental health care, whether it feels like it's preventative mm-hmm. or crisis management or trauma treatment or inner inherited, you know, family of origin issues, whatever it might be. I do, I do think there's a place for it, but I wouldn't, I really would never say like, unless you do therapy, you know, you're going to be miserable. (laughs) It's never, that doesn't feel true to me. It never has. Um, But I do, you know, obviously I have a little bit of a bias. I'm a big believer in it, but I do, I do think it's like, I don't know, taking your vitamins, you know, or getting a couple hours extra sleep. Like it just doesn't really hurt ever to have that in your back pocket. Yeah. Sometimes I just think like, life is hard and we go through so many transitions in our life, you know, whether it's like leaving for college then meeting a spouse and then building a life with this other person who has their own beliefs. And, you know, you know that you hope that your um, morals and your values align, but you're making a life with this other person who probably has a different upbringing than you. Then you know, maybe you have children. I just, oftentimes I think like, how amazing would it be to have a resource? And yes, like the frequency wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, once a month, it would maybe be like, you know, once or twice a year or kind of as needed. But I think the practice of it would be so to have that person that is detached and that outside perspective would probably be so powerful to navigate life with. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have had, I think five different therapists, you know, throughout my adulthood and two of them have been wonderful and two of them like were really not great. And one of them was like, okay. And, um, well, I'll say like three of them were wonderful. One was okay. And one was not great, (laughs) but, um, I don't regret any time that I spent in those therapists office, even the one who ultimately, like, I just never wanted to go back to. And, you know, I don't refer people to that person. I just don't feel like it's, it's the right, um, kind of, everything, you know, for me and for the people I work with, but just having that honoring the need for therapy by showing up in a therapist's office was my way of taking care of myself, even though it wasn't a good fit and it didn't help shift a lot long-term. It's just, there's something to be said for showing up for yourself that way, you know? In my own, I, I should share my own personal experience here because it was interesting. I, things were like good in my marriage. I just thought, you know, here's a, good opportunity. We were just, we had had our three kids and I could tell that like through that and through the transition of like being a young mom and just like learning that, that there was things that I was like resentful for from three years ago. And I was just like, you know, maybe before Uh things got bad, I should just speak to someone and see like the impact that that could have. And and it was interesting because as soon as I made the appointment, all of a sudden in my head, I was like, 
I don't need therapy. Like my relationship's great. Like it was like, I was rationalizing, like, I don't even know what I'm going to talk about when I get there. Like, I don't even know why I had this. I don't know if it's just your body's kind of like defense mechanism, your ego, if you will, just trying to keep you safe. I mean, it was the most amazing session I ever had. It like filled my cup. It gave me so much amazing perspective in regards to my husband and my marriage. It was yeah. so powerful. But what would you like any advice for someone who's scared even to, you know, even if they know they need it, but so scared of like what it can bring up and really facing those fears? Because I think for a lot of us, it's like we almost turn a blind eye mm-hmm. so that we don't have to accept so that we don't realize then we, you know, then it's not our responsibility. Right. But do you have any like, how would you encourage someone who you know, maybe has thought about it, but is scared to take that step. Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's so normal. You know, I've never gone into, excuse me, into a new therapist's office without some anxiety and some fears and some concerns and doubt. Um, And even pretty much every session, even with someone I've known a long time and it's really comfortable when I'm the client, like I'm, I'm nervous, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's a vulnerable experience. And I do, I think there's, so much, I think it's so valuable to keep in mind that none of us get through our lives unscathed, you know, and we can talk about what's maybe more traumatic in the grand scheme of things, you know, trauma versus trauma, but underneath it all, pain is pain and suffering is suffering. And we're all imperfect and we're all pack animals at that biological level. We need each other. So if therapy is the way for you to access some healthy relationship, you know, and access some validation and some comfort and some perspective that is useful, then why, why not give that, give that to yourself? And I know people will say time and money and all of that. And yet we put so much emphasis on, you know, medical care and physical well-being and how much money do we spend on gyms and food and doctors, you know, and our brains are part of our body. You know, It's an organ in our body. And part of taking good care of our brains is addressing the mental health, you know, the cognitive and the emotional and all of that. So I really, I really always say, yes, it's scary. Yes, it's hard. And it's just one of the best things you could do. Mm-hmm. And even if you go in and you're like, you know, I didn't get much out of that. It's not for me. Now, you know, now you know, and you go find some other tools, right? Or a different therapist or a different kind of approach, you know, to mental and spiritual well-being. But why not? I guess kind of why not give it a shot? Right. I love even what you said about even the therapists that weren't good, you still oh, you yeah. didn't regret that experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I have heard a lot of people say that, like, they've given it a shot. They just didn't jive with that therapist. And it's, like, turned them off from even... Mm-hmm kind of looking for another one. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I, I try to do this too really early in, in the process with clients and tell them, you know, the most important factor is that you and I have a good bond and that you come in here and feel safe and validated and that, you know, this is useful to you and that I'm the right fit, you know, whatever, however you want to view it kind of energetically or relationally or spiritually or whatever, that we have this, um, this bond and alliance together and I'll, you know, give them that speech. And then I'll say, so if right now it doesn't feel right, 
let me be helpful to you in one way by giving you referrals. You know, let me at least be a stepping stone in the right direction, you know, a stepping stone in the path toward the right person. And any good therapist doesn't take that personally, you know, when it just isn't the right fit. And I, you know, I try to take feedback and I sometimes will unpack it when things don't go well and try to acknowledge maybe what, what I didn't do quite as well as I wanted to or how I hope to next time. But I don't take it personally, you know, it's just part of the deal. And I don't, I would never personally blame a therapist that I didn't love as a client um, because it just wasn't a good, it just wasn't a good fit, you know, it just didn't work. And so that's okay. And so I encourage people that if it's a long-term therapist and something goes wonky, like to bring that to your therapist and talk about it. But if it's like your first or second session and you just don't, it doesn't feel right, then just shop around to go, you know, go to the next place, just like you would, again, a doctor or a pair of jeans or <laughs> whatever it is. Like if you try on jeans that don't fit, you don't give up. You just go try to find another pair of pants, you know, or you wear sweats instead or whatever. Yes, very true. <laughs> okay, so getting back to inherited trauma, can it um, manifest itself, or maybe manifest isn't the right word, but can the avoidance of dealing with inherited trauma lead to like physical diseases? I, I would think yes. And I believe yes, that's not my area of expertise, you know, so I can't speak like from the medical, you know, perspective of it. Um, mm -hmm. But there is a lot of research that shows how genes are changed when trauma is experienced. So um, why not? Why couldn't, you know, other medical or physical things be affected too, of course they would be. And if, and there is a lot of research around what chronic stress does and trauma is a form of chronic stress. Right. So it affects all the systems, you know, affects everything. Right. So if we see a behavior that maybe we even, we see in ourselves, we see it, you know, we're repeating what maybe we saw our mothers or our fathers do. Is there, let's say if someone's not ready to take that step of therapy, what can they do to really start to work through that and mm -hmm. to change it? I would say read, read Mark Wolin's book, you know, but other than that, just pra start practicing some new perspectives or trying to adopt a new perspective and acknowledge, you know, you're human and you're doing what all humans do. We repeat what we know. We exemplify what is modeled for us and even if we rebel against what we see that's still very much connected to what we see right it's still very much a response to what we know so we're you're just doing what every human does right um and then work through self-compassion too there's a really wonderful resource selfcompassion.net i think it might be org but kristen neff's work i don't know if you're familiar with her she's really um, she's devoted her whole career to self-compassion and she has this website where there's a self-compassion assessment. And then after you take the assessment, it gives you assignments to improve your self-compassion and it's all free. It's meditations and videos, journal prompts, just really wonderful stuff. That's an amazing um, resource. It's so great. It's such a gift. And I think that's often what happens, you know, is we might look at our parents and say, okay, it's going to be different with me. I'm never going to do that again. And then we actually, or I'm never going to repeat that. And then we actually become parents and we just keep, you know, we look in the mirror and we're like, Oh my gosh, I am my mother, you know? And then we want to beat the crap out of ourselves mm -hmm. mentally, you know, and emotionally and shame ourselves for doing the thing we said we would never do. Right. And that is the downfall, you know, that shame, that self blame 
is what will really take us down. So if we can shower ourselves with self-compassion and normalize that, okay, I'm just doing what I'm, what all humans do, what my brain is programmed to do. I don't want to do it anymore. And that's okay. It's also okay that I've done it. And right now, what's the next best step? You know, do I go, you know, apologize to my kids? Do I go join like a, a mother's group? You know, do I, you know, consider therapy? Do I get on this website and do some self-compassion work? Do I read more in this book? You know, just getting, let, letting yourself accept both the reality and then the hope that there, that there can be change. I've seen this in my previous work with clients that oftentimes when someone has a very unhealthy relationship in regards to food, that it did stem from their mother. And now with a little bit of distance from the situation, you can see that there wasn't necessarily ill intent, which I think oftentimes, like whether it was something our parents passed down to us or something that we are unintendedly passing down to our children. I don't think that intent to harm is there actually. I think oftentimes we think we're doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. We think we're, you know, saving our child from being ridiculed, from being overweight by, you know, telling them that they need to eat healthy. And then it cultivates this really unhealthy relationship um, with food in in adult life. So speaking to the self-compassion part, do you think that self-compassion and even self-forgiveness needs to happen for yourself before you can extend that, say, to your parent that now you've realized maybe past this? I, I do. Yeah, I do. I think any, anything we want to give to anyone else, we have to give to ourselves first, whether it's love or acceptance, compassion, forgiveness. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you know what maybe was done to us by someone else is less valid or less important or less painful than what we've quote unquote done to ourselves but um any the way we view others and the way we treat others is simply a reflection of that relationship with the self so i do i i believe that you know if we want to have compassionate respectful you know forgiving views of parents mothers who maybe you know, raise this on diets or raise us with body shame or, you know, still maybe inundate us with comments or mm-hmm. pressure or anything. It has to go internal because, you know, we're not born, we're not born with shame. We're not born with self-doubt. We're not born beating ourselves up. We're not born without compassion for ourselves. We actually are pretty shame, like a hundred percent shame for, you know, think, you know, you have three children. Mm-hmm your one and a half year old probably isn't ashamed of like being hungry, you know, or needing a new diaper, you know, or whatever. They, they just kind of ask for what they need for and are so grateful when they get it and respond with love and compassion and don't aren't hard on themselves. It's the kind of thing that kids learn, you know, we learned that and that's true for us and it's true for our parents. You know, they were once babies who didn't have shame and somehow developed shame along the way. So did their parents. And so did their, you know, there's, there's no one to blame here. It's just about, again, the human condition. So we, as if we go in and turn inward and access again, that shame free existence and, and go back to our original capacity for compassion. And we really get good at that with ourselves. Then it's just, natural like it just kind of flows to anyone around us and it doesn't mean that we're 
like never upset with anybody again, you know, or that we don't feel anger or annoyance or whatever with other people, it just doesn't go get internalized anymore. You know, we just don't, we don't let it own the relationship the way maybe it once did. Mm, I feel like that would just be such a powerful way to live. Like I think to moments in my own life where maybe I reacted in a way that I wasn't proud of or that I wouldn't ideally choose to. And, you know, I tried to exercise just having self-compassion and it is powerful just to kind of be like, well, listen, putting blame on myself for feeling shame doesn't really mm-hmm. serve me. Yeah. Where the self-compassion I can, you know, see that, you know, I didn't react in a way that I wanted to and move on and then hopefully next time choose, you know, a different behavior. Yeah, I really love Tara Brock's work around all of this. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a um, psychologist and then she's also a Buddhist and she writes really beautifully blending the two spiritual and scientific perspectives. And, um, she has a book called Radical Acceptance and then a brand new book called Radical Compassion. Mm. And her podcast is, talk about like a free resource, just a gift to the world. Her podcast is so, so good. She gives guided meditations and visualizations and then lectures on various topics. And she, I learned from her the concept of the second arrow where um, the first arrow, so this is a hunting metaphor, which I don't, I'm not a hunter, so I don't really, I probably butcher it a little bit, but with big game, if you're hunting with a bow and arrow, it usually takes two arrows to take the animal down, I guess. And the first arrow doesn't take them down. They're injured, but they can usually get away. Mm-hmm. It's the second arrow that takes them down and then, you know, they're caught and taken. So in our lives, we get first arrows that are out of our control. You know, we get maybe body shame from our parents, you know or bullying at school, or freaking diet culture. <laughs> That's its own arrow, right? Yes. Um, the second arrow is what we, what we take in and internalize, and that's the shame. You know, that's, that's the self-blame. That's the stuff that really takes us down. Mm-hmm. So if we can acknowledge and accept, you know, there are going to be arrows coming at me externally, whether I want them to or not, I can't control that. I might be injured, but it's not going to take me down. You know, I can nurse that wound. I can heal it. I can practice self-care and really heal and um, recover. But if I internalize it and take it personally and make it about my identity and it defines me, and then again with, you know, body image and food, if I respond to it by restricting and dieting and shaming myself and obsessing, then that's what will take me down. And that's where eating disorders come in. And that's, you know, those are so deadly. And I mean, torture, mental and emotional torture. So the second arrow is what we can avoid. Mm. And that's where self-compassion is so vital because it helps save us and our families. That's where the inherited trauma can really be stopped. And the beautiful thing, what I see with a lot of families and Brenny Brown writes about this too in her in her work um, around shame is that not only, you know, let's say I do my work and I have self-compassion and all, you know, all this healthy stuff. And so I'm, I'm so much better off and my kids, you know, it trickles down to my kids, but it also can move back up the family tree. So the older generations can still benefit. And it's not so much that genetically I'm changing them, you know, that I'm not doing that, but 
but this work, you know, I've seen how it has affected my parents and my grandparents and my siblings. And I don't mean to say, I don't mean to put pressure on myself or anyone else that I'm saving all these people. That's not what this is, but just more how that ripple effect, you know, cause we're all so connected and it's, it's such an energy and spiritual experience to heal at all those different levels, heal, heal the brain and change the genes, but also, you know, that less tangible spiritual and energetic healing, it really has a ripple effect in all directions, definitely down to the new generations, but it kind of floats up too. You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but I've seen that. And then with so many clients seen that effect, it's really cool. It makes perfect sense. And like so powerful that really, if we just start with ourselves, yeah. you know, worry less about fixing all of the people around us and just worry about ourselves that like in, in an unrelated way that kind of yes. trickles through. Yeah. This is a question that I, it just came to my mind. So let's say I've worked, realized that, you know, something, a belief of mine was passed down, say, maybe say close to me, like by my mother. Mm-hmm. Is it something that you would share with that person? How do you like, and like you said, okay, so specifically even with um, diet culture, like oftentimes this is something that was inherited to us, but is continual for lots of people. Mm-hmm. So how do you, do you bring that discovery to them? Is that going to be just meant with, met with, um, you know, feel like an attack almost? Yeah. Like how do you- it can feel tricky and it's definitely, you know, person to person, relationship to relationship. And I, I don't believe ever in black and white statements, like you have to confront your mom and tell her everything or else this will never change. You know, that's, that's never useful to approach it that way. But I do think there is a lot of room for discussions, you know, around, you know, like you, I'll just kind of use you, you know, as an example, like you did for yourself. Like if you realize, okay, I inherited this and these are the specific beliefs and I can see clearly how they're tied to my mom and rooted in in that example, you might decide if things are safe and there's, you know, kind of reliability and trust there, you might decide, to go to your mom. And this is something that Mark Wolin talks a lot about in his book. Um, it didn't start with you. you. Might go to her and say, I'm I'm trying to work through this and I could really use your help. And I'm not angry at you. I don't blame you. I have so much compassion for you. What if we kind of heal this together? You know, that's the kind of thing that could happen. But if there's not safety and you don't trust and you're maybe part of it is you don't trust yourself to not attack, you know, or not to out of pain and suffering lash out, then, you know, don't do it. Right. Or if you've maybe put your toe in the water with vulnerability with that parent or that person and learned they can't handle it, you know, they're not good with their own emotion. They, then why would I expect them to go with mine? Mm-hmm. Then, then don't do it. Right. And that's where I think a lot of, and there are other ways to approach. It doesn't have to be in person. It can be in writing, you know, you can send a letter or you can um, somehow kind of communicate that you're working through things. You may say, you don't need to respond. I just want you to know, you know, there's so many different layers to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think often there is this concern about the, the external relationship, you know, between you and someone else when really it just kind of circles back to the self. And when you're really clear on who you are and you have that deep compassion and, you know, you're not identified as a body anymore or, you know, 
a skinny or fat or whatever, you're not labeling yourself in those ways anymore. It's not external anymore. It's internal. Then those, those conversations and moments can be really organic and really natural. And it doesn't have to be like this big, serious confrontation, you know, or a, a big formal conversation where like you reflective listening, like you, and you can, you could go to a therapist and you could do a family session. I mean, there's so many ways to do it. But I find the more focus that remains on the self, mm-hmm. the more natural it is to just kind of be ready, you know, and available to those conversations. It seems as if like we're, if we're not validating ourselves in the ways we need, that no matter how the conversation goes, it yeah. won't matter. Yeah, yeah. It really just comes down to your yourself. Yeah. And if you're validating yourself and if you understand and have that compassion, it's almost like that conversation doesn't necessarily need to happen in order for you to like have progress. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I, sometimes I think we all do this. I know there were moments in kind of my own healing process where I would have these like kind of, if only almost fantasies, like if only this person would understand how they affected me and then they would say this and then I would feel better. Like if only that would happen, then everything would be fine. And it's kind of like, if only I would win the lottery, you know, that I never have to worry about money again. It's really is this like fantasy thing. Mm-hmm. If only, I think it's kind of a dangerous, slippery slope, right? But it's also just a signal that there's a need there that I'm giving power away around. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for someone else to come meet this need mm-hmm. when I can do that for myself. And that's where that validation, that self-validation comes in mm-hmm. because it's, it's not true. You know, if if only that person had really said that thing to me, whatever, three, five years ago, I still would have been where I was. You know, it wasn't going to really overnight make this huge difference. It's all, it really to me comes back to the relationship with the self. And like you said, that in turn just, just ripples out and it trickles down and it makes external relationships so much easier. That self-awareness and just really putting space between you know, your beliefs and your thoughts, it just is so powerful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so wonderful and so, so informative. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking me. I have one last question and then um, we'll quickly chat about your workshop that you have coming up that I feel like will be beneficial for so many people. Oh, sure. Great. So I'm just wondering, what is one thing that is a fundamental component for you to live a well-balanced life? One thing that's a fundamental component for like me specifically? Yes. Okay. Well, this is a little bit of a broad umbrella of an answer, but I find that spending spending a few minutes at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day with myself mm-hmm. is really vital. And by that, I mean... Like I have to have anywhere from five to 60 minutes, you know, where I'm just connected with myself, checking in with myself, exploring what's there, practicing self-awareness, practicing mindfulness, practicing gratitude, you know, doing all those different practices and um, just coming back centered to that top priority, which is that relationship with myself. And you know, I believe in God and I have a strong religious practice. And to me, they're, they're one in the same. And sometimes it does uh, look like prayer, you know, to connect with myself because I believe in that spiritual being dwelling inside me, which is also connected to God, right? So 
it's, it's a way to connect with who I really, really am, you know, at the very core and who I always have been and always will be, whether I'm in a mortal body or not, you know, I really try to get grounded in that connection and that relationship at the beginning of every day and at the end of every day. So what does it look like for you at the end of the day? Is it prayer again, mostly? I've been building these routines for, I mean, off and on for a couple of years, but like putting a lot of effort into it over these last nine months or so. And at the end of the day, what it looks like is I get out my notebook, which I just kind of keep on my desk all the time. And I write down the wins for the day. So I make sure to really celebrate the things that went well, whether it was something that I feel like I did that was in my control or just something that the universe sent my way, you know, that went well. Um, and then I list my gratitudes or gratefuls. I call them the gratefuls with my kids. Um, so the things that we're grateful for or that I'm grateful for. And I, you know, the minimum is three, but it's really hard to stop once you get going. So <laughs> I have a lot of those and it almost is always, you know, the people in my life, nature, you know, it's pretty consistent, but just to sit in that gratitude is yeah. really, really helpful. And to, to access joy and celebration and gratitude really brings me back into my body. And after being out in the world and in my head and pulled in a million directions throughout the day to get back just in myself with those two practices is really useful. I also will future pace. I don't know if you've heard of that term, but it's like this mental collaboration practice where I basically just decide how the rest of the night is going to go and how I'm going to feel and how I'm going to think and how I'm going to sleep. And then what I'm going to think about when I first wake up, like I just really try to kind of own and outline my, my mental approach to the next like 12 hours of my life. And that's anywhere from like three sentences to half a page, you know? Yeah. So I kind of look back at the day, look at the night, and then I start to look at the next day. And that's when I get out my planner and do some logistics and I time block the next day and, you know, let myself look into the future a little bit. And then I always read at the end of the day, some sort of meditation or prayer, usually listen to my affirmations that I've recorded for myself. Um, and then I go into whatever I'd planned for fun. And usually that's like watching a show with my husband or doing a puzzle, or like whatever. And usually I'll do that and then turn off the light or then turn off the TV, do the reading and turn off the light. So that's what it looks like. And it, I think it sounds like kind of a lot, but that's, I would not recommend if you have no nighttime routine, you know, or, or no healthy uh, connection to your self practice, don't try to do all of that. Right. Just start with like one little something, like a little, maybe a gratitude practice, three things at night and just start there. Yeah. And I think making sure it like feels good for you, like, you yeah. know, just yeah. figuring out what, um, what routine feels good for you because I'm sure you can attest that like that's an enjoyable part of your evening you probably look forward to that practice now oh I love it and I feel like you know it's become such a habit that I crave it and it's just so again soothing grounding to have a container for my day and you know by extension for my life is just really really um helpful for me and Mm -hmm. I think I kind of hesitated to embrace it because it felt like a control, like I worried it was a control thing, but really it's empower. It's empowering because it is control, but it's controlling what I can, you know, it's controlling me. It's not trying to have like a death grip on all these other things that are out of my control. It's just owning myself and connecting with myself. 
That's so beautiful. So where can our listeners find you? I'm on Instagram. That's kind of my main social media platform. It's therapy with Caitlin. Mm -hmm. That's C-A-I-T-L-I-N. That's, that's where I kind of hang out the most. I'm also on Facebook and, um, Pinterest, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) Instagram is kind of the best place to find me most often. And you have an upcoming workshop that anyone can attend. So your therapy, you have to be in person. Is that correct? So for therapy, I'm licensed in Nevada. So you have to live in Nevada if I can, if I'm going to be your therapist technically, Um, which means we can do teletherapy if you live in a different part of the state. I live in Las Vegas. So if you're in Las Vegas, you can come in my office, but to actually have me as a therapist, you have to be somewhere in Nevada. But you, you have this group workshop that would make you available to anyone, anywhere. And it's all yeah. about boundaries. Do you want to just quickly talk about that? Sure. Yeah. It's a boundaries workshop for women. So any woman anywhere can register for this. Um, it's a very small group. I'm capping it at 12 and the registration closes when the group starts on March 5th. It starts at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So whatever that means for you, wherever you are. Um, I do expect it to sell out. So I'd be really surprised if we're going up till the last minute. But it's all about learning about boundaries and creating boundaries for your life and then maintaining them. So I call it a workshop because there's going to be trial and error and going home with assignments and challenges and then coming back and telling us how it went and getting coaching around it and There'll be a private Facebook group. So all of you who are in it can stay connected 24 seven. I'll also be in the group to help mediate and pitch in and offer some support. Um, and then of course I'll be recording the coaching calls. So if for some reason Thursday afternoons don't work or don't always work, you can submit your questions beforehand. I'll address them in coaching and then you can watch it at your convenience or review the coaching anytime you want. And you'll have lifetime access to that. I'm really excited about it. It's been really fun to kind of dream about and then make come to life. It's something that's been in my mind for years and to really make it happen. I'm just really amped. (laughs) That's so exciting. And I'm sure it'll be nothing short of powerful and transformational for the people who join. So. Oh, thank you. All of Caitlin's information will be in the show notes, any books you referenced, the podcast, any website resources I'll put in the show notes. So you can just look there for them all. And thank you so much again. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Jillian. It's so fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Well-Balanced Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you took a screenshot, tagged me, and then shared it on your Instagram stories. Also, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcast, I would truly appreciate if you left me a rating and review. Just let me know what your thoughts are and if there's anything you want to hear more of on the Well-Balanced Podcast.